Warning. The podcast you are about to experience may contain content that isn't suitable for younger audiences. So, if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Welcome to Villainology, a podcast revolving around our favorite personifications of humanity's darker side, and what truly makes them the scourge of their respective worlds. I am your host, Rob Mobley, and while this episode isn't premiering on Friday the 13th, we hope that it proves to be a killer favorite of yours. For those of you that are new here, the basic idea is that I present each guest an opportunity to discuss at length someone who is widely considered to be a villain, and to offer their own personal insight as to why they find them so intriguing. These opinions are totally subjective, and I find that hearing the thoughts of other people on someone you either love to hate or hate to love helps to better understand these characters as a whole. Our guest today is someone who this podcast owes a great debt to. You've heard his name mentioned at the end of every episode, and now it's time to finally put a voice to that name. The composer of the Villainology theme song himself, Mr. Ross Lampert. Welcome to the show. Hi, welcome. Uh, I mean, I feel very welcome to be here. And uh, I I did get a couple of notes when you had first started this show about people enjoying the theme song being what it was. And so I just, I guess now I can say much later after the fact, thank you to anybody who's enjoyed that thing. (laughs) Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm definitely happy to be here. Happy to say hi to the Villainology fan. What is it about music that is integral to shaping a good villain? Well, I think music, especially with, you know, when it comes to villains, we're going to recognize them by the, the clothes that they wear, so to speak. A villain's introduction is very important, right? And so there's a lot of direction behind it a lot of the time. The first time you see them on camera or on stage, and part of that can be, you know, a good villain song, especially like, I mean, think about the Imperial March from Star Wars. Oh, yeah. It's almost bigger than Vader because it's the Empire, right? And oh, yes. it's just you. So it stands for a whole perspective unto itself. You know what it means when you when you hear those drums and you hear the horns going like you can almost just feel the influence through the music. I think music has the advantage of communicating you know, without having to go through language and sort of using its own. It's it's very raw. In, in, as as far as art form goes so like when you can communicate in that super like lingual way you, you can just try to like you know focus on a particular atmosphere you're trying to create i mean some yeah some villains some some of our real life villains they have presence where you're like this guy's got a theme song <laughs> 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 like this guy's scary enough like <laughs> you know you it, that's how it feels sometimes somebody walks in the room and you just feel something and you're like yeah it's, it's music can do that so i i would say that for sure what do you look for in a good villain besides a lot of those pieces of clothing i was talking earlier about you know how a villain is presented initially i look for this might be because of my age or what i what i grew up consuming the first thing i usually look for is to see if they contradict themselves usually through the ideology they're trying to shove down the world's throat or even just the protagonist, you know, like whatever their goals are. I try to look for a relationship between that and the methods they choose, like how they go about doing what they say they want to do. Because I I think like a lot of human nature is in that area between those two things. So that's usually the second thing I look for outside of, you know, whatever the 
creative team wanted to present, you know, when that villain shows up. And then another thing I look for is the actions themselves. What does it say that this person, you know, goes about things this way? I guess you could say like, this isn't this isn't the villain I, I went with today. But the first villain I really liked was Gus Frank from Breaking Bad. Oh, and sure. Yes. Like I could just I could watch that man do anything and it, it could be wonderful. It could be terrible. And my eyes would be glued to the screen. And it's because of the way he does everything. He's so procedural and exact. And it's just that's so exciting to watch. And it implies a lot more than needs to be said about that character. So that's another thing, too, is sometimes everything you need to know is in the methods themselves, the little evil things, the, the way they choose to be evil. So that's that's the third thing. And then I guess everything else is details. You had brought up that this person wasn't your first choice, but it was definitely someone you really wanted to latch onto. So I'll ask the question now. Tell us, Ross Lampert, which villain have you chosen? My lost son. <laughs> My um, swimming team champion, Jason Voorhees. Did you know that a young boy drowned the year before those two others were killed? The counselors weren't paying any attention. They were making love while that young boy drowned. His name was Jason. I was working the day that it happened, preparing meals. Here, I was the cook. Jason should have been watched every minute. He was... He wasn't a very good swimmer. We can go now, dear. I think we should wait for Mr. Christie. Oh, that's not necessary. I don't understand. I am Jason. Jason was a natural choice for me because I, I feel like his tragedy is so well known. It's about as well known as the uh, splatterpunk aesthetic that he came with, you know, the, the 80s slasher, you know, this, this big mess where, you know, origin stories were a bit more vague uh, at the time because that wasn't really what was putting butts in seats. What was putting butts in seats was the title of the movie. I have a soft spot for the 80s slasher that comes from... Uh, it's something I, I we can get into a little bit later, but like uh, a lot was left vague and I'm naturally very interested in what people do when they think they're not thinking about things. When they're on autopilot, like that to me is some of the most interesting, there's a lot of dramatic potential when somebody's on autopilot. Do you know like the play in Inspector Calls? This family is, is sitting at a table. They've done some, I'm, I'm not going to spoil it because it's like a, it's a classic and, and you may end up seeing it eventually. So there's this family at a table, they've done something wrong, they're worried an inspector is going to show up and question them about it, and then that seems to happen, is what I'll say. And I just feel like, I, it was the first time where I was like, why is this so interesting to me? It's literally just somebody talking to people about things, you know, and all of the writing advice I've been given is, you know, characters should do, not just show up and say. And I was like, I think it's the format of the questionnaire. It's like, I'm anticipating the next answers based on the information I already have. It's like the... The police procedural. The procedural's in the name. Oh, yeah. It's, it's cool to watch, yeah, somebody go about their business. A lot of these franchise films uh, operated this way. They were built to make money. They were built to be put out frequently. They wanted to have a new Friday the 13th brand event every year. 
sometimes twice in a year if it was possible. And it meant that the producers would, would say, okay, here's the budget, get it done. And while they were looking away, you know, that's where I jump in myself. Like, that's where I'm like, oh, thank God. Okay. How did this mess go down? Because <laughs> you, you you're making a movie off no money at all. Like, part five in particular, is like, looks like it was made for $85. And they were all like filming permits. There's a there's a charm to it. And Jason is the embodiment of all that. Uh, I think he's the people's hero. I think he actually does have a moral character that has been upheld throughout all the films. And he is among many other important things to be a survivor. He always comes back. And I, I really love that about him. <laughs> that he always finds a way to come back. So you went on and you talked about the history surrounding the Friday the 13th franchise. But why Jason Voorhees in particular? I said earlier that Jason is the people's choice. And I, I do mean that. For those who don't know, if you if you only know Jason, or if you only know Friday the 13th as the Hockey Mask Killer franchise, you may be shocked to find out that Jason is not the killer in the first film. That's true. I'll say that. Like, the killer is uh, actually his mother. What had happened with Friday the 13th was that Sean S. Cunningham, the uh, producer of the series and the director of the first film and the first film only, had been cutting film with Wes Craven in the same editing room. Oh, damn. So Sean S. Cunningham is talking with Wes Craven, and they both really want to make money in movies because they love movies and they want to quit their jobs. Wes Craven had gotten work, you know, teaching with his philosophy and English master's degrees, but Sean S. Cunningham really didn't have a fallback. You know, he was doing a lot of PA work and stuff. He'd always wanted to be in film. And so he was taking a lot of like, I guess what you could call aesthetic shortcuts, which is my nice way of introducing the fact that Sean S. Cunningham basically shot pornography. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, yeah, just so he could get paid knowing he was making films. Hey, hey, hey you got to make that bread somehow, you know? Precisely. Yeah, like he he was it, it was he was making pornos and was Craven, you know, is kind of making pornos too. You can't I I couldn't find the right credits on IMDb. They may be up now. No, I, Wes Craven had been doing horror, and he kind of introduces horror as a cheap thing to make in film to Sean while they are sharing, you know, the film editing space. Due to these talks with each other, Wes Craven is eventually convinced to make things like The Last House on the Left, right? Um, like like these these nasty things, simply because Sean, being a shrewd businessman, is like, look, if you get your movie banned, that's free publicity. Some market will pick that up and sell it for you. Like, it doesn't need to be Hollywood. Because when are we going to get into there? So, <laughs> um, so I, I, Sean sees what, what Wes is doing and is able to watch the trends. And is like, okay, so I'm going to buy Friday the 13th, the trademark, and put an ad out in the paper. And that's the first thing I'm going to do with it. He did not have a script. When he put out an ad for this movie, he didn't know what it would be about, but he knew if all anyone needs to know is that it takes place on an unlucky holiday, the crowd will show up. You know, the young kids, the kids who want to see like nasty, disgusting shit at their theater. Oh, sure. So, oh, you mean like just, you know, you and me. Yeah, exactly. It's like <laughs> you and me. <laughs> so, yes, exactly. He, it does work. It, it allows him to get some funding he's able to take it around to investors and he hires victor miller victor miller is this sort of 
airport paperback novelist who's trying to write screenplays to pay off, you know, a couple of debts and stuff. And Sean S. Cunningham hires him to write this script as a work for hire. Now, to skip ahead a bit, this is why there isn't going to be a lot of Friday the 13th stuff for a very long time. Because according to Victor Miller, Jason is dead. And this is true. As someone who has read the Friday the 13th screenplay, because I love this series, he's not in it at all. And so that has been when when Victor Miller sued for the rights, basically just to couch money off the royalties. He was like, yeah, I mean, I don't want any more Jason content because as far as I'm concerned, Jason is dead. So he writes the script, which and if you if you read the interviews, like a lot of the people who get hired to do this movie, among them is Kevin Bacon, by the way. Oh, yeah. And, and yeah, in, like in, in, in such a, a classic. Role. Well, it's it's like it was like Johnny Depp being in Friday the third or not Friday and Nightmare on Elm Street. And it was just yeah. one of those moments you're just like, oh, mwah. That's so good. Yeah, <laughs> they both kind of play these off-kilter characters who have something coming to them, and you're not sure what's going on. And well, we can get to Nightmare later, because <laughs> night there, I, I, I night, nightmares will be showing up in, in just a couple of years from where I'm at in the timeline. But like while they're filming, Carrie comes out right during the pre-production and then production phase, and I will not say anything about Carrie. Other than that, there is a bit of a final stinger, which is, I think, is fair. That's a genre. That's a genre trapping in horror. That final stinger goes off like gangbusters on the B-movie market. So the Friday 13th team is like, well, we need one. And we need one ASAP. Now, Tom Savini, the makeup artist and special effects designer for these films, was called up by Sean S. Cunningham and is like, can you get us a final stinger? I think I know what will work. Since this is a work for hire, Victor Miller isn't in the picture at this point once production starts. That right. script is set in stone, right? So, like, this is this is, has nothing to do with him. He calls up and he's like, there's this ending where, you know, our final girl wakes up in the hospital. What if she has a dream? And she dreams of Jason in the river. In the movie, it's explained that Jason drowns while the camp counselors are having sex. And so Pamela Voorhees, Jason's mother kills camp counselors who seem more concerned with sex than children. That was her thing. Because she's like, this is just a disaster waiting to it's happen. It's a logical motivation. <laughs> yeah, it, it makes sense. And and for a character who, and, and it's also in the writing too, it wasn't like cut from any scenes. I was kind of like having it spoiled and going in. I was like, okay, well, hopefully this will be integrated pretty well because that's a pretty good, you know, that's a pretty good uh, motivation they've got there. Most of the killing is done in the first person. Which was the style of the 80s slasher. My Bloody Valentine does this a lot. But the idea is that the, the kids are there on this some, almost like an amusement park ride. People are dying so fast. So some, sometimes it would switch to first person. And so that became a trope. Oh, Halloween is probably even even better example. The intro to Halloween. Absolutely. Right. So that's how they conceal that it's this older woman. But she does only show up towards the end, like for the last 15, 16 minutes. But with the stinger in, set in place... And I bring up these 15, 16 minutes to say that this was a classically trained, Meisner-trained actress, the one playing Pamela Voorhees, Betsy Palmer. And she was basically only taking this job because they promised to pay just enough to pay off a car loan. She was, yeah, she had kind of fallen out. And that's a trend for a lot of the Friday the 13th movies, is a lot of the people who are acting are stage people who are looking for screen credits, which I feel like might be relatable to your, to you and your audience. Yeah, that, that sounds about right. <laughs> 
<laughs> Look, I got to pay rent this month. Fine, I'll just do this. Yeah, thing. I, I guess I'm in part eleven or whatever. <laughs> it is. Like, <laughs> so she was having trouble. You know, she the more and more she finds out about this movie, the snuffier and snuffier it looks. And she's like, I can't believe I'm fucking doing this. You know, these are clearly kids, and they're not even. I like they they definitely haven't done blue shoes at each other for eight hours, you know, like I have. Like I feel like I can't even talk to them about acting. And she caught wind of the script change through Tom Savini, who had been carrying a photograph of Jason, the design. And she said, What the hell is that? You know, that's not in the script. What is that? And he said, That's your son. He's gonna be in the movie now. That's Jason. And she apparently was so moved she like almost wept right in front of him. Yeah, she was like, oh my God. And it allowed her way into the character. When she oh. when she saw the, yeah, yeah, yeah. She saw the tragedy. And it's only for a couple of seconds in the movie, just for that, that one little stinger. She saw the tragedy that had befallen him. And she said, I got to work. I thought about, you know, it says that in the script, the first person killer is called the Prowler. You know, until her name is revealed in the script at the end. It says the Prowler has a wedding ring on. So she had said, okay, well, I had a wedding ring. You know, I'm working at a camp. I'm old enough to have a child. What is this character? You know, and she, she came up with this backstory that Pamela had been married and had a child. And when the child had come out, you know, with a birth defect, Jason has a, a, a birth defect on his face. Um, I forget what the exact thing is. And I don't think this even said throughout all the movies, but like that it had ruined the marriage that the husband had left after that was the result and leaving Pamela alone as a single mother. And that when she lost her child to a drowning accident because camp counselors were too busy, you know, being young and having sex, she took it personally, you know, because a lot of them are getting hired and getting by based on their looks. And this is a, this is a thread that's kind of in the first movie is camp blood, right? What they're calling camp crystal Lake. The thing with the death curse is brought back because this, He's not too much older, but it's implied he's in his 30s. This guy, Steve, wants to bring it back. And the youngest girl, who ends up being the, the final girl at the end of the movie, it's pretty clear that he has intentions with her and that she has rebuffed him already. So, you know, what a fitting, you know, final girl. You have this sort of thematic thread all the way through. It allowed her a way into the character. And there are several people who will defend it as one of the best, if not the best, performances out of the 80s slashers, if not slasher history. Like and she does do a great job. I've I've watched it, rewatched it a couple of times, just because like her choices are so interesting. I remember first seeing that movie and that reveal being one where you're. I mean, because obviously a lot of people by now they just inherently know if they even if they haven't seen the movies they recognize that silhouette. They recognize this mm. Jason Voorhees as just a staple within the horror genre. And to start the franchise and then realize oh wait, he's not in this movie? Like, he is, but he's he's not the main killer? It's And then that, that moment where you're like, oh, it's, oh, oh! Yeah. And it's it changes the whole outlook of, of, of the, I mean, naturally, you know, as the movies progress, you know, it kind of gets a little bit more and more ridiculous, but that initial anchor of it being based with his mother and, and her mother's undying love for him is just the most yeah. heartbreaking thing. Well, I think it's it's like to compare with something like the MCU, right? Like the MCU starts with Iron Man and that is a pretty well-established through line. But this is a messy franchise, Friday the 13th. And this is what I mean when I say Jason is the people's choice. The people 
the reaction to that scene was so strong. I mean, of course, the sequel was already planned and greenlit. At that point, Sean S. Cunningham was going to step out for reasons that we can get to. But like at that point, the producers who had taken over from him were saying, well, Jason's got to be in the next movie. And so, you know, at that point, Victor Miller was like, well, I'm not doing another work for hire because, again, Jason is dead to him. And Steve Miner, an associate producer on the previous movie, took over as director of parts two and three, I think, as a deal, just so that those films would have a director no matter what happened to the writing. Yeah, so Jason was brought in because he was so loved, like that scene by his audience. They demanded and the producer said, well, yeah, of course, then we have to give the people what they want. That is a good idea. And bringing him back in part two as the killer. Again, if you've never seen these films, you may be shocked to hear that the hockey mask is not in part two. Mm-hmm. It's not his first appearance uh, or uh, with the hockey mask. His appearance at that time. He had the potato sack on his face, right? It was like it was like a That's bag right. on his head. It was a reference to an earlier film from the 70s called The Town That Dreaded Sundown, which is by some considered to be a proto slasher, like a slasher. It ended up being a slasher in practice, but the film has so many other idiosyncrasies it kind of doesn't know it's a slasher it's not pace the way you would pace a slasher if you had killings like this but yeah it was kind of throwing a bone to slasher history because again there was no plan do we know why he returned as a hulking invulnerable grown man when he died technically as a 10 year old did they ever explain that in the movies not really (laughs) because there's just one of those things where like not really well you see him in that stinger and he's just this like this 50 pound soaking wet boy coming out of the water and then the next time you see him he is just this mammoth of a guy like there yeah. there there is no like we we didn't watch him grow up there was no like, it was just like night and day like that that's one thing i always was wondering about and and i've heard some people talk about how the first movie with what the mom was doing she was actually some kind of like a blood ritual that was necessary to to bring him back to life or something like that i don't know it's it's you know those people trying to make you know connections and things but i was i wanted to ask you if you knew of any specific reason as to why that was the way it was the short answer i can tell you is that this wouldn't have been a concern we think of media differently now the internet allows us to have very patient thorough ongoing conversations about canon so Friday 13th comes out in 1980. That same time, by the next year, 1981, part two was out. No time flat. Yeah, right? Like, that's what I'm... They were banging this out because it was cheap and they needed a series of hits. They they wanted an event. It was almost like, look, Friday the 13th has a, a shop set up in this theater. It's always, you know, there's because there's always going to be cheap theaters. Not like cheap theaters, like as a a, the- a building that houses like movie theaters within it. Right. But like, you know, those theaters, they can only have so many IMAX, you know, theaters, so many real D theaters. Eventually they have cheap seats. And it's like, well, if they're going to have cheap seats and if the movie's cheaply made, then we can do it frequently. And if we do it frequently, then we'll have a following. So people will eventually be like, yeah, well, I've never seen one of these, but they're here every time I'm here. Let me just walk in and see. And so what is at the beginning of a lot of these movies, especially the first four, is just a recap of the previous movie. And these are not long. These are mainly an hour and a half. You know, I don't think they they don't usually hit two hours unless you're watching an extended version, which is a lot more sex and gore, which is really not 
sometimes the the, the um, you know the ratings board was right. You didn't need all that. <laughs> 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 like, like, we get it. He's dead. <laughs> like we didn't need all that. But like, there's almost not time to ask those questions. And again, like the people wanted to see Jason. However, I have thought a lot about why I like Jason and why he appeals to me so much. Over the franchise's history, I'll say real quick, starting in part three, he gets the hockey mask from one of the kids he kills, and it stays all the way up through part 10, and then even in the reboot. They kept it in the reboot. It becomes iconic, like, strictly because of a single bit in three that, like, resonated so well. And, again, the people's choice, right? They're like, oh, we like the hockey mask. You've got to keep the hockey mask. And the producers, they love that. Because they can sell hockey masks. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, like the, the reason the mask is chosen is because one of the people on the effects team was a Detroit Red Wings fan. And that would have been the Red Wings goalie's mask. That's why it's got the red stripes on it. Everybody started buying stock with Dick's Sporting Goods right after that movie <laughs> came out. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. Yeah, for the authentic cosplayers. You know, they're like, I don't want to buy Absolutely. Jason Voorhees mask.amazon.com. No, fuck that. <laughs> I'm going to go to the source. So that, that's what I mean. There are so many little choices that create Jason. And these choices are not made strictly by the writer. And they're definitely not made by the actor. A lot of these actors are stuntmen. In the beginning, they're very old stuntmen who are out of work and just like, well, slashers are popular now. You know, I probably can't make it into whatever the, you know, the 80s action stars are doing because that's, that's gotten like a lot bigger. Here's, you know, some cheap work that I can get and I get to be, you know, a starring role. And and so, yeah, a lot of them are much older. And Jason as a character becomes a vessel for special effects people, costume people, constantly changing his appearance to be exciting and, and to react. And I think it speaks to his, his vesselness that it's totally possible in between part one and two, somebody who responds to the name Jason, some killer, some mythical being that continues to be to, to rise, maybe just the angry spirit of Pamela that manifested in that lake somewhere and spit out a Jason-like creature. Like, maybe it was that. You know, maybe that's why time compressed so much, because it's not him. It's like a humanoid, or it could even be just another human who happens to respond to this because they are so damaged and deranged due to the, you know, the trauma of never being able to die and always wanting to kill. <laughs> <laughs> you know like it could, uh, finally I can, I can do something with this yeah and it's like and then everybody's calling him jason and he's like oh well, i'm glad to have a name i, I <laughs> yeah oh man they called me gus for the longest time and i really hated it so jason sounds so much better well an interesting angle in part two is that the final girl is a child psychologist Ginny. she's a child psychologist and she's the one who's able to sort of stop jason in his tracks by approaching him with sort of like this motherly affect that she's putting on to try to mimic Jason's mother figure. But the thing is, like, Jason doesn't talk, right? You only know how he feels about things due to his body language, which even then is fairly reserved unless he's putting his hand through your face. I think it's totally possible that someone, it's kind of like when you approach a dog, they don't know what you're saying. You could be like, hey, little piece of shit, how you doing? But as long as you're, <laughs> as long as you're petting them, they're like, oh, well, I love all this wonderful attention. This must be fine, you know, because it's your tone and your voice. And it's like, that's kind of why a lot of people really like part two is 
she stands up to him with the only tool she has, you know, her training, and it works. And that, and she's right about her intuitions about the psychology of a person suffering from what's described in sort of the Jason urban legend that's passed around at the camp. So yeah, like that, that would be my, my, my theory is that there's just, it doesn't really matter if it's, it's, it's a Jason creature, right? It is a creature that responds to this name that acts like this. And we know that it's true because the way we're able to track Jason can't be from his appearance, right? Because he's never had a consistent appearance. It can't be from, you know, his motivation because his motivation changes with every film. It can't even be from his abilities because Jason is quite literally brought back from the dead starting in part six, which is written as a monster movie. It was written by Tom McLaughlin who aimed to make Jason a a sort of universal monster character, which I bet totally appeals to you, Rob. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So, So yeah, it's like he brought him back from the dead. All of a sudden Jason has like far bigger strength than he used to. He kind of has like, the, the skill set that he would carry for the for the rest of the films, all of that is mainly established in six. It's not really added upon in later films as much as, as six carried. And it's like, so there, is Jason a monster, a human? He's a human in part five for sure, you know, because that's not, oh my God, that one is on me. I should have said spoilers, but all these movies are from the 80s. I'm so sorry. I forget. No, I, I, I like, got a feeling like if anybody's listening to this episode, I trust you have watched the movies or at least enough to know the ins and outs of how it works. Well, I'll say part five is based on a copycat killing. Somebody puts on the Jason mask and starts terrorizing this small town. But like everybody knows Jason is dead from the events in part four. The, the, the joke actually is that the law enforcement is doing a terrible job because the only lead they have is that it's Jason Voorhees. And that's what they say to the mayor. And the mayor is like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> you know, you're telling me the Chupacabra. Again? Because chup- to him, he's like, what, you're telling me the Chupacabra did this? No, get me a real lead. <laughs> like, and that's 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 the that's the, the conflict that they have to deal with in that movie. And that movie was very much like thinly veiled shots at the Reagan administration, according to a lot of people. I wasn't alive. Okay, I wasn't alive. I don't know how true that is. It's probably true. Part five is ridiculous. It's just a series of like skits. And there's a killer. It has the most kills out of the whole series, though, so you kind of have to watch it. But the the point is, in that movie, he's a human. He's an imposter. Imposter Jason, as they say. So, like, yeah, Jason is a lot of things, but we, as the audience, understand him by his actions, which is that he kills teenagers who are, I would say, almost always, if not always, way out of fucking line. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of them, I mean... I would say nine nine times out of ten, they're killing someone with a tragic flaw that either, one, they've decided not to work on because they're stuck-up teenagers, or two, they have realized too late that they should have worked on. This is actually where he gets the hockey mask. The actor character in part three brings a bunch of masks with him on the camping trip they go on in that movie. and uh, As you do. I, as you do. You know, actors. <laughs> My it's the you know, it's the thing hang out with actors is they always want to show me their bag of masks. <laughs> well, actually, I, maybe I should take that back because hopefully they would have a bag of masks on them. I, mean... I, I in this day and age, <laughs> covering their nose and mouth. Yeah, right. Yeah, there you go. It comes full circle. Jason, you win this one. What would you say separates him 
from the other classic slashers of that era, such as Michael Myers, Freddy Krueger, and Leatherface. I think if you look at those slashers, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series, you know, it doesn't get its sequel until 10 years later. I think the appeal of that series is it's sort of a perversion of the nuclear family. What Toby Hooper wanted was, in his own words, just a whole family of not Ted Danson. That's that's the guy in the good place. <laughs> now I just need a Texas Chainsaw Charlie Manson. Manson. Can there we just get t- Ted Danson's family? Ted Danson why, was in why? charge of. <laughs> <laughs> this is so good. Ted Danson killed Sharon Tate. Oh my you know god. <laughs> Oh, no, we're not I in almost, a good place now. Oh, no, no. absolutely not. <laughs> See, I almost said it. I could have held it back, but I knew I had to admit that I thought it. Oh, God, yeah, that's the funniest to, thing. I had to confess. <laughs> I thought Ted Danson for Charlie Manson. Actually, I think Charlie Manson is also wrong. I think I think it was Ed Gein who was actually the inspiration. The guy okay. who would dig up bodies and make skins. Because, yeah, I think that's in that movie yeah, more, that's, than, that sounds about more right. than anything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was, I was totally... <laughs> And see, I know that due to podcasting magic, you could delete it, but I would not blame you if you let that get in. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that, that's just podcast gold, but go on. It's gold. But so like that kind of becomes the theme of that franchise is is the fucked up family, how, variations on that theme. And I think that's why a sequel took a while. Um, if you look at Nightmare after two, which two is a totally different film for a totally different reason. And then with Halloween, there is an expansion of, with, with Nightmare, it's sort of an expansion of the rules. You know, like, what is Freddy really able to do? What When does he show up? Under what conditions? Because that that kind of thing is, due to the vague ending in the first film, left up to up for grabs. It, it is worth elaborating on. I think it's especially true of Halloween. I mean, by the, by the time you're in the fifth movie, you've got a lot of mythology to contest with. To the point where, you know, a lot of movies in the franchise have a love-hate relationship with each other. Oh, yes. And I think that the difference in the Friday the 13th movies is that, and with Jason, is that you don't see a lot of that. Jason always does the same thing. And that's kind of what I mean. Is like we understand Jason by what he repeatedly does. He's capable of of enduring these changes because he does him. He going to kill people on his turf or who people in, I mean, and not even always exclusively on his turf. He will chase down and find people who were disrespectful to his turf. You know, his mother is laying there somewhere. Excuse me while I jump on this boat full of kids and go to New York City for a hot minute. (laughs) Well, 8, oh boy. Yeah, uh, 8 8 was a very troubled production because 8, the investors were, they they had heard this pitch. They were like, I wanted Jason to like interrupt a Madison Square Garden boxing match. I definitely want an Empire State Building scene. Uh, You know, I want this, I want that. And they're like, yeah, 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 sure, we'll handle it. Here's the thing. At this time, the studio is killing time because Sean S. Cunningham wants Freddy versus Jason. It takes him like 10 years to get this shit down because of the licensing, like, you know, the talks would have taken so long. I mean, I'm sure he was watching all the business with Sony and Spider-Man. Like, I feel you. I feel all of you in this situation. <laughs> like, I just want it to work out. Uh, yeah, it took him that long. And so by the time six parts six through ten is just the studio killing time for freddy versus jason they're like so they're telling him like yeah sure i'm we'll try to find the funding for that but you know i mean if that's what you want to do you can direct this movie yeah yeah yeah. jason takes manhattan we get it and they did not have the money (laughs) 
and they kept telling him like look we're gonna have to cut this bit but you can have the rest and he's like okay and they're like okay we're gonna have to cut this next bit but we promise you'll get to manhattan and he's like well okay (laughs) i guess it takes place on the boat now (laughs) yeah because like by the end of the the negotiations i mean it's maybe 20 minutes in manhattan yeah thereabouts Uh, and it's still pretty significantly i mean i would say they get enough enough of enough of manhattan in there to qualify but like he shows up in times square that's all you really need yeah what you you really everybody was there for really like two things and you know one is the joke in the diner where the the kids run in and they're like oh my god there's a psycho chasing us and you know the waitress is like welcome to new york can i find you a table Um, (laughs) you know and the other the other thing that everybody wanted was an ad for the Detroit wet red wings on a billboard and Jason looking up and cocking his head, you know, like that's, so both of those are in the movie. You will get at, get that in eight. Otherwise it's not great. (laughs) (laughs) And you could tell like they're, they're foot in the bill. Yeah. I would say that's what, that's what differentiates him is no matter what environment he's in, no matter what he is put through from a production standpoint, you can still recognize him by his behaviors by like his one thing that was really, you know, the people's thing. I think that's really what sets him apart is that there, it's much more about how's he going to do it. It's much more about like, you know, what, what chance do these kids have? Cause we are on movie seven, <laughs> you know, like how close are they going to get, you know, because you, you kind of already know what you're, you, you, you have the gist of what you're showing up for in Jason. But when you've got people who love what they do, like in the makeup artist department, and in the stunts department and, and in the effects department, when you've got people like that who are finally able to work with a, a relatively blank slate, you're in for a lot more surprises than you'd realize. I mean, I the the one thing I will not say anything about is the kills in this series are really incredible. Oh, surely. I, you will not forget some of the stunts that you've seen get pulled off in the Friday the 13th franchise. That is for damn sure. What is the legacy of not only Jason, but of the franchise as a whole? My personal take, there are only 12 movies. And I just find it very ironic that we probably won't get any more. And it didn't make it to 13. And that's the whole curse. <laughs> I get the only oh, thing no. that, yeah, right? Like, it's so, it's this phantom pain that lingers on in my mind when I think too hard about it. Like, my, you know, my, my boy Jason, I can't make it. I mean, we're in reboot central here, like in the 2020s, you know, things are being brought back left and right. And I know that because of the lawsuit, you know, it probably won't happen for me and my hockey mask friend over there. <laughs> that that to me is the big legacy. But I, I also I encourage people to watch these films now that we're living in an extended universe world, because this is a franchise that took a lot of feedback. And in my opinion, the Friday the 13th franchise is worth studying if you're a creative because it is so analogous to the creative process. When I watch these films, they're not perfect. I'm on Letterboxd. I love that app just because I love movie reviews. I love what people have to say about things when, and sort of like mining my friends for their tastes. Cause I, I find people's tastes to be super interesting as well. But like, yeah, none of them I've rated above four stars. There, even I know, like there, there are some flaws in there, but I find that they're so, they're interesting to me because I don't think we'll make films like this anymore. You know, like we were saying, we're living in in a world with the internet. You can get a lot of backstory from the internet. 
you can get a lot of work done for you. A lot of people are making videos in order to point out things that you'd never get on your first, second, or third watch or rewatch. And these are people who have the time to mine these things because they happen to love it and happen to have the time and are willing to share it because they care about the franchise. But the Friday 13th series, while there are certain elements that carry over, there's really only one character who carries over. But like, really what carries over is the feeling of watching one, the feeling of watching a Friday the 13th movie. They were designed so that you wouldn't need a lot of prerequisites. Because again, like the, the, the flow that they were hoping for when it came to the marketing was you've seen Friday the 13th continuously show up. You know, it's closer to Fast and the Furious. And that like, you know, oh my God, there's eight of these things and a spinoff. Like if I have nothing else better to do, I might as well try one and and just see how it goes. Or Or you have a friend that is really into them and they drag you along. And, you know, Friday the 13th is built so that you can kind of join immediately. Now, I encourage everyone to start at the beginning and make your way through so you can see how filming conditions changed, how the acting performances had changed. The final Friday, the part four of the final chapter is is was meant to end it. But again, the fans demanded more Friday the 13th. And so their idea was for a copycat killer to bring him back in five. And it doesn't go over well. The ratings for five were in the toilet, the worst rated of any of the movies to this day. And it's like, I look at that and I'm like, here's this big failed experiment that got released in theaters and the franchise kept going. They said, no, 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 no. we're going to pick ourselves up and we're going to find a way to make a good Friday the 13th movie again. There has to be a way to bring them back. There has to be a way because the people can see it. You know, our audience can see it. They know that there's a way to bring back Jason. They're writing these films in their heads. And so we just need to go back to the drawing board. And that's what they did with Six is they, they found this writer-director, Tom McLaughlin, who had just finished his first feature. And they were like, look, we really like your sense of humor. He had been writing both comedy and drama. And there is some fourth wall breaking humor that predates Scream in the script. And he had said that he had met with Freddie Mancuso Jr., who had become the, the lead producer and. He said, look, I love what you're shopping around. I think you can save our franchise because right now, whatever we're trying isn't working. And it's, I look at something like the dark universe and I'm like, there was a time where, where these movies were made cheaply enough to where this franchise could have had another shot. Not that I'm defending the mummy. <laughs> just, <laughs> hey, sorry, I just realized, Hey, I, I haven't I, even I, seen the mummy. I, it could be, it could be. It could be anything, that movie. All I know is that it didn't work out. All I know is it didn't have Vernon Fraser, and that's all I needed. Yeah. I think, you know, look at Linda Hamilton. Look at what Linda Hamilton did for Terminator. You know, they brought her back in a different kind of role. And, like, I wasn't the... I liked Dark Fate quite a lot, but I, 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 I wasn't as much of a... I, I can't really... I liked other films in the, in the franchise much better, and I'm not just talking about one and two. Uh, and I'm not going to say which those are because I've already shared enough of my unpopular opinions here. <laughs> but I, I, that's the power of a people's um, choice is they saw Linda in that trailer and were like, fuck yes. I don't know how this has worked out, but I, I'm signed up because this is a vote of confidence. You know, this is this goes to show that if they can't be James Cameron good, they can at least like find something that will tie the franchise together. I, I think that that's the, that's the legacy is that Friday the 13th is that it was cheap enough. It found its audience quickly enough that it was able to sort of carve out its own world in the slasher horror genre. 
and it responded to the audience and it's proof that like i mean six i should i should have maybe pointed out earlier six is considered to be the fan favorite up with part four so you have the originally planned franchise ending and the you know second draft of bringing it back as the two most popular films in the franchise i find that fascinating i mean how many people stop after a first draft friday the 13th got to 12 movies through drafts part nine i haven't mentioned anything about part nine part nine was a, a student filmmaker who had just graduated film school had always wanted to do friday the 13th he pitched that and they gave it to him so here's this wonderful opportunity of this guy who's able to make a movie in his favorite franchise under his conditions when do you think we could get something like that out of marvel where where they would take someone that fresh last i checked was ryan coogler you know, I mean, Ryan Coogler had made Creed, which is huge. Like, I think that really made him into Black Panther. But he, I think, was the youngest to helm an MCU project regarding, like, film career-wise. I would So I would say that it's a great analog for the creative process. The movies aren't perfect, but they're proof that there are many, many ways to skin the same cat. And if you have a good team backing you up, they will fill in those blanks in ways you couldn't expect, and you'll have a hit. Final thoughts. What does Jason Voorhees mean to you personally? Jason is a survivor to me. Jason is driven by his principles. He is driven by a moral character. I, I, I might have mentioned that earlier, I can't recall. But part of the reason why 8 was a bad movie could definitely be put on the director. There was a point on that set where he was like, I want Jason to kick a dog when he comes out of the sewer in Manhattan. You know, as like his first power move. And Kane Hodder, who had just picked up the role in part seven, was like, I'm not doing that. Jason wouldn't do that. And I wouldn't do that. In part four, which stars child star Corey Feldman, Corey Feldman was apparently terrible to work with on set because the director was terrible to him. And he just, you know, he was like a starring role. He was, his character is supposed to be a tribute to, you know, the makeup artist who had worked on the franchise. This on a set where like a woman almost caught hypothermia because the director had kept her in too long. Crash pads weren't being supplied for a lot of the stunts. And the, you know, the actor playing Jason had been like, look, you need to stop this. And it, when Corey Feldman had a breakdown in the middle of the scene and the director wanted to keep going to, you know, quote unquote, use the footage, he stood up and he was like, no, I'm not. I will quit if you continue to push this kid, because clearly, you know, he's been trying to tell us he's not having a good time. here, And that that got them to change the scene. This gets picked up in, again, part six, where there's children at the camp this time first time in the whole series where actual children are at crystal lake and jason shows up and he kind of scans the beds while the children are asleep but he doesn't kill them and this is what i mean is that there there are principles to jason if you're paying attention you know if you if you if you ask yourself what well, have i ever seen him do this or that or, or you know what you know when he cocks his head why is he confused he's not going to tell you because he can't talk you can only judge him by his actions and that's another thing that like what jason means to me is Sometimes all you're ever going to have from someone is their actions. Their principles may be described very well by that person or, you know, by someone else on their behalf. But, you know, sometimes if that person doesn't have an advocate and if you don't know them, all they're going to see are the fruits of your labor, what you have and haven't done. And like I said, Jason goes through a lot of different appearances. He goes through a lot of changes. And I think change is a very scary thing. I think a lot of people could agree with me now given what's happened over the last two years, that change does not come the way you expect it. When it shows up, it's, it's almost already too late. And the only question is, how are you going to adapt? So you have all these old beloved stuntmen 
who are on set and have been on sets for quite a while, trying to adapt to the needs of the team, you know, trying to, I mean, wearing a burlap sack all day is probably not fun. And so what I mean is Jason proves that if you just keep doing you, you know, if you stick to your, to your actions, to what you repeatedly do, not only will you continue to be recognized, but you'll continue to survive in new and different forms. You know, if you let people's input, if somebody makes a suggestion about, you know, your wardrobe, if they're like, you know, I've never seen you in a turtleneck before. And you're like, oh, turtlenecks are so dorky. But then, you know, you think about it and you're like, eh, well, maybe I'm a bit dorky. <laughs> maybe it'll fit, you know, maybe it would look good on me. And, and so like, you know, maybe you wear them and maybe they keep your neck warm forever. And maybe you always hated scarves and now turtlenecks are your thing. You survived that change. You were open to that change because, you know, it's not totally vital. What, what I repeatedly do is what's important. You know, what I repeatedly, what I, what I put out, you know, and, and words are a part of that. I try to look on the positive side. That's something that's me. No matter if I'm living in an overpriced apartment, like for rent, or if I'm living in a mansion, you know, my, my kind actions are defining, you know, what I do with what I have, you know, and that, that's just like one of several examples. I think Jason's proof. You are what you repeatedly do. And so long as you hold on to that, you can survive any aesthetic change. You know, you could even survive death. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? And, and, and maybe it's, maybe it's, it's almost like symbolically for the better that the franchise is, you know, dead, that, that it, that it stayed, that it, that it had its time and it, and it knew when it needed to go. Uh, I find a lot of reboots uh, are confused, or at least the ones that don't go over well. A lot of, a lot of the criticisms are like, this didn't see what made the original good. And I feel like it's very easy to lose that because the message of Jason is so simple. You wouldn't recognize it. You, you really wouldn't unless, you know, something scratched in your head like it did for me. And I, I just couldn't stop thinking of Hockey Mask Machete Man. <laughs> and I, I, had to, I had to watch all of them. I'm like, I got to get this out of my system and figure out, like, what's pulling me to this character? And by the time I finished them, I was like, that's what it is. I know what to expect. He's familiar. He's a character. And he can endure anything. And so, yeah, Jason is about survival. It's about enduring through things, rolling with the punches, going with the times, not worrying about if it looks cool, not worrying about if your costume is even appropriate for the type of, you know, situation you are in, you know, not worrying if things make sense. Although, you know, maybe you should worry about that in your own time. <laughs> but just worrying about like, you know, your, your, your concern is, I am what I choose to do. I am what I repeatedly do. I'm going to make it through this. Ross, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, it's great. I'm um, uh, I'm glad I had a coffee beforehand. <laughs> I've, I've, I'm only about like sixty percent of my way through all like the ridiculous facts I have about this franchise that I love. I, I love any excuse to talk about. I, I, I love the idea for this show. I, I think most people they they come away from at least a situation or two feeling like an outsider, and that to me has always been you know the role of the antagonist in a, in a narrative. It's not so much the protagonist because the protagonist has been chosen for the narrative. You know, they're the person that gets to go on the journey and change. Sure. The antagonist. Yeah. Yeah. It's the antagonist who's alienated, even though they get almost as, you know, a lot of times almost as much screen time, almost as much influence over the plot, I would say as the protagonist, they lose. And it's very easy to feel like that. And to be like, what made me different where I lost and they won. And so it's very easy to see yourself in a villain. And for me, 
yeah, I've always been attracted to to the darker side of things when it came to picking a team and stuff like that. And I think everybody has a favorite villain for this reason. They know the one time where they saw themselves on the other side and were like, there's something about this person that really gets to me. Absolutely. You know, there's something about this I can't, I can't forget. And yeah, so I, it's, it's been, it's been wonderful being on. I'm, uh, thank you for having me. Abs- always, always. You're always welcome back. And there are plenty of other projects out there. A lot of, in in this pandemic, I don't have to tell a lot of you out there, you know, a lot of people that are in the arts community are trying to do what they can to continue to make art in some capacity. There are a lot of people I know, some people that have been on the show, some people that you haven't even heard of have created things. And Ross, I know you have one that you wanted to throw out there. I kind of run my in-house production company under the name Dagger and Ink. You can go to our, our website, daggerandink.com, and, and see a couple of the projects I've worked on. What I, what I mainly specialize in is a lot of creative makeshift solutions for smaller productions to get the most out of what they want to do. To give you an example, I did sound design for a virtual production by Dunbagan called A Profit's Gamble, which is a um, first of a trilogy, from what I understand a series of plays that take place in Camelot while building the new society that comes with, you know, that whole mythological territory. With that, you know, that was mainly just me, my guitar, and a bunch of sound effects. I was able to record original music, you know, for a theater production. And then after that, the the next project I have coming up is actually in February, based on a song I recorded in November of last year. The Born Dance Company has a national eating disorders awareness show. And I played that show the previous year this year, due to social distancing, I had recorded a piece that will be choreographed by Courtney Murray, one of the dancers on the troupe, um, and that should be premiering later. Wow, oh my gosh, it's the 31st of January, so yeah. by the time this comes out, it'll be later this month. I, I, there'll be a post on my on my website about it if you want to check it out then. But I would also say, like, just because of the nature of my work, regarding like what to plug, I would say to anybody listening, like, please check online for what your friends are up to, what's local. Uh, Because I totally agree with you, Rob. There is, you really can't take the, you know, you can take the people out of the theater, right? Mm -hmm. You can't take, yeah, but you can't take the theater out of the people. And and that's been so true over the last year. Um, I find that the the harder I look, um, the more positivity I'm able to see. People who are trying anyway. Tons of virtual productions, virtual cabarets, virtual open mics. People have taken to, I mean, like you were saying, podcasts, just that there there are so many little projects. And so um, if you are in a giving mood, I would definitely, there's there's someone who would love to have you, probably closer than you think. And I would definitely encourage you to get involved with your local theater. I know the tank down the street from us here at, um, on 36th Street in Manhattan just went almost entirely virtual and started doing things. And they're a nonprofit. I was glad to see that they're still operating in some capacity right now. But yeah, I would just say, check your local listings, as they say. Anything helps. Thanks again, Ross, for coming on and hanging out for a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Yet again, thanks for having me. I hope everyone enjoyed, you know, my Jason fanboy session. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you, listener, for carving out a little bit of time for us today. If you like the show, please consider following us on Facebook and Instagram at Villainology Podcast and on Twitter at Villainology Pod. I'm also on Twitch about three times a week playing all sorts of games, and I'd love to hang out with you all. So come hang out with me at twitch.tv slash Rob underscore Mobley. Uh, We're also 
building a budding Discord community. It's called The Lair. If you're interested in that, feel free to uh, to hit me up on socials and I will send you an invite to that. But also feel free to give us a review if you like what we're doing and drop us a comment on who you would like to see discussed next. And hopefully we'll see you next time. Stay foolish, mortals. Ha 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 ha